One place I have always been uh, fascinated to see at work, but never have, is a courtroom. And everybody that I speak to about this, whether they uh, work in it or, and it's their job every day or whether they've done jury duty, they always say to me, look, Duncan, you will not enjoy it anywhere near as much as you think you will. It is actually a really boring place. A courtroom is not a place of high entertainment. Uh, and I'm obviously convinced that they're wrong. I think they're hiding something from me. I'm sure it must be really interesting. But undoubtedly, I have been influenced, maybe you have as well, by Hollywood. And where it's interesting, I think, how often in films, the courtroom is the place, the dramatic centerpiece, sometimes of a whole movie, um, certainly so many films where the climactic moment right at the end happens within a courtroom, um, whether it's kind of the, the, a classic film like A Few Good Men, um, or more recently, there's The Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix, um, or of course, there is the high point, the definitive item in the legal drama, the timeless classic of all of cinema, Legally Blonde, <laughs> or away from Hollywood, to, to Kill a Mockingbird, considered by so many to be perhaps the greatest novel ever written, and it finds its dramatic center in the courtroom. There is something about a courtroom that it looms large in our imagination of what drama looks like. It's a place of conflict, it's a place of confession, of revelation, of new things. And of course, done rightly, it comes with a real satisfying conclusion as a decision is made and we know the outcome of all of the drama that's been building. But I think there's something more about why a courtroom is so resonant to us. And I think it's because it satisfies a craving within us for justice that all of us carry. We want to see justice done. A courtroom is the place where there's a separation from right and wrong. A verdict is pronounced and the wrong is condemned, and those that are in the right are vindicated. And that is one way in which we can understand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where divine justice is done. In this series, we have been looking at the crucifixion over a number of weeks. We've been in it for three or four weeks now. And we've seen how the crucifixion of Jesus is best understood by us, not by one single explanation. You just hear it once, and you're like, right, I've got it now. But more, you kind of have to see a series of beautiful images side by side or, or themes that come together or, or strands that make up a tapestry. You can pick whatever analogy you like. But there's no one single explanation that holds the whole meaning. It's more you've got to approach it from different angles in order to see it in its beauty. And as we consider the, the cross, as we make our way up to Easter Sunday in a couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus as our Passover lamb. Last week, we looked at Jesus as our substitution and would encourage you to check those messages on our website. And today, we're going to see how the cross is a place of judgment. And where we're going with this message is it's, it's one of those messages where if we are to understand what the vivid, gleaming beauty of the cross is and the good news that is carried within the cross, we do have to take a little bit of time to understand the bad news of why it was that so desperately we needed the cross. Just like came through in our worship time of how we could not lift ourselves. We needed him to come down and lift us up. And as we do that, I'm hoping that we'll sort of follow through and see how the judgment of God at the cross, as he speaks a verdict over us, is actually the greatest gift that we could ever receive.
So we're going to be working this morning out of Romans chapter 3. We'll be from going from verse 21. So if you've got a Bible, do turn there. It's good to be able to track along. Um, but Romans chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, the words are going to appear on the screen behind me. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." What is interesting about the gospel accounts of Jesus' last days on earth is that his last days, they begin with him getting arrested. So he gets arrested and he stands as one accused. Um, They do a series of trials for him. He faces trials. And then it ends with him being condemned as a, facing the punishment of a criminal. It ends with him dying a criminal's death. But at no point in between those does anybody that has any authority, does like a judge figure, actually at any point deliver a definitive verdict over him and says, I find this man to be guilty. And he is sentenced to death. At no point does any character in the narrative say that. He's actually passed from trial to trial, these sort of fraudulent trials that are going on. And the closest we get to any kind of verdict is Pilate actually saying, I find no guilt in him three times. But even that's not really a verdict. And so you can look at it and think, this seems to be a trial. And there seems to be a sentence passed down, but there's no actual verdict or pronouncement of guilt or innocence. And that is until we meet our passage and others like it as you go further along in the New Testament. We know in our passage here that Paul is talking about the cross because in verse 24 he mentions about the blood of Jesus. And the language of the passage that we've just looked at in Romans is is right out of the courtroom. Most obviously we see it in verse uh, 24, which I think we'll have a slide here, where we are justified by his grace. This word justified uh, is, is a word that they would have used in a courtroom as you come before a judge. You come before this one that's in all authority, all power, and then he pronounces a verdict over you. Either you are guilty and you are condemned to punishment, or you are, as we have here, you are justified. You are free from any charge. You have no case to answer. You are found to be in the right And this courtroom language doesn't just appear once here, but when we understand that the word that's translated for us here is justified is also translated, uh, it can also be translated as righteousness, we see it appears seven times in our passage. It is clear from Paul as he uses this language of guilty and innocence and he uses the language of the courtroom so plentifully in this passage 
that for, at the end of Jesus' life, from Paul's perspective, a judgment did take place. There was an authoritative verdict pronounced. But it wasn't the judgment of man in a courthouse. But on a criminal's cross came the judgment of God. And I imagine with those three words, judgment of God, I've maybe made the whole room feel uncomfortable. The idea of being judged by God, even God acting as judge over all, is one that I think we find quite difficult. Judgment is just not an idea that we like in today's society. Being called judgmental is probably one of the worst things that we could have said over us. And I think generally we don't mind judges, but so long as when we do have judges, at least in sort of popular culture, they have absolutely no authority whatsoever. I don't know if you've ever watched Judge Rinder on TV. I obviously have not, apart from for research purposes. He basically offers his opinion on a domestic squabble, but there's no real authority there. Or Strictly Come Dancing. The judge is there. Again, they're unable to offer their opinion, but there's no real authority or power in their hands. And of course, along with judgment comes the idea of guilt, that someone else gets to decide whether... I or someone else is in the right or in the wrong. And that is exactly what we see in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This idea that we might stand before God and have a case to answer that we might come before God and be found wanting, that we might fall short of his standards, his glory, that idea has been so thoroughly rejected by our society at large. I think even for those of us that have been a Christian for a long time or would want to follow God, I do think we find it hard to grasp. The world that we live in is a world of permissibility. It's a world of liberation from any rules and any standards of right or wrong, a freedom for us to define our own morality is the general world in which we live in. And I think it's easier than ever for us to then avoid the idea that we might be guilty. No one else is going to pronounce it over us. We can live thinking there is no such concept. But while we can avoid guilt, we can't escape it. One of my favorite books is the book Crime and Punishment. Has anyone else read it? It's a good, I'd recommend it, um, obviously, because it's one of my favorite books. <laughs> it's about a guy who, um, who thinks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to murder somebody, and I'm going to get away with it. He rationalizes why it would be a good idea. And part of that rationalization is, I am not going to get caught. So essentially, nobody is going to be able to speak over me that I am guilty And so I'm going to be able to get away with it. It's going to be a good thing for society, good thing for my family, good thing for me. And so he does it. That's right at the beginning of the book, no spoilers. But then the rest of the book, this is a bit of a spoiler, (laughs) is that then what he does not reckon with is the fact that after this, he does not get caught. All of what he expected, it kind of happens. But what he doesn't reckon with is the crushing guilt that he feels internally of what he's done. How the churning of and torment and devastation of, I have done something wrong. I am guilty for what I have done. 
Nobody else is saying that over him. Nobody has any idea, but internally he is ruined. And probably not to quite the same extreme, I imagine all of us can relate to that idea. That internally, I just know I have felt I've done something wrong and I know I'm guilty. This idea of being guilty before God, it may not be particularly culturally relevant. We may not hear many people talk about it. But nevertheless, we can never fully escape it because, as we see in Scripture, it is part of the creational truth. We can try and run from it. We can try and hide. We can try and avoid. We can try and distract ourselves from it. But at the deepest level, I think all of us would say it does resonate. That as I am, if I were to stand before a holy God... I would be found wanting. I know I would fall short. Verse 23, it's a verse that I think should make us pause. It's a sobering verse. All have fallen short. It should make us think, that's, that's me. There's not much wiggle room to, in that verse. There's not many exceptions. There's no appeals process attached to it. All have fallen short. But that all also, it teaches us something else, I think. All have sinned. You know, if one person had sinned, that would be bad. If a handful of people had sinned, it would suggest the emerging of some kind of pattern. But what if all people have sinned? What if there has never been anybody throughout all of history who has not? That's systemic. That tells us that is a sign that there is something deeply and terribly wrong with the world in which we live in. It's a sign of a world in total bondage that cannot escape sin. And that's exactly how Jesus and Paul in the, in the Bible talk about it. They talk about sin as being something that enslaves, that we are slaves to sin. I think often when we think of the idea of sin, of, uh, we think of, of things that we have done wrong, wrong things that we've maybe thought of or done. And of course, all of that is true. But actually, the primary way that the New Testament in the Bible talks about sin is as something else. It talks of sin as a power, a power that enslaves us, that is a master over us. The power of sin holds us captive, and we are powerless to escape it. This is heavy stuff. I don't know about you, but I generally like to think that I'm doing quite well in and of myself. But this is how Scripture talks about the reality of the human condition. We don't like to think about it, but this is how it speaks of it. This is real. And I do think that it actually does help us to understand the world at large, if nothing else. But how does something as broken and as evil as the bombing and shelling of innocent people with ballistic missiles, how does that happen? How do so many then willfully enable Putin and others like him, other dictators around the world, to do the atrocities that are happening? How do so many other things happen that don't even have space in our headlines at the moment? Why is our world so broken? There's a power of sin that is enslaving this world. And along with it comes evil and injustice and heartbreak. And we are powerless to overcome it. 
And as much as it is an enslaving thing and we are victims in it, also scripture is quite clear that we are complicit then with this power that holds us. All of us know we have freedom of choice. We're able to choose what it is that we do. And yet, again, just personally speaking, but I wonder if you can put yourself in the story. I know that I have made the wrong choices at times in my life. I know that I have had the option of the good thing, option of the wrong thing, and I've picked the wrong thing more than once. That I took the cookie from the cookie jar. I... This is an actual, not an actual example, but I'll personalize it. Just, you know, move the numbers around in the spreadsheet for my game or worse, whatever it might be. All of us can put ourselves in that narrative. We choose to ally ourselves to the sin that enslaves us. It's a desperate condition. And we do need to see just how hopeless and helpless our condition is. We need to understand that us, as we are before God, no words that we could say, no actions we could do, no reparations we might be able to make would make right this situation. This is the whole argument that Paul has been making for the first three chapters of the book of Romans, the first three chapters and 20 verses that go before the passage that we just read, that there is nothing that we can do. We are stuck. We need help. We need a rescuer. We need a deliverer to come from outside of ourselves to help us. Verse 21, but now, but now. The famous Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he was preaching through Romans, said, there are no more wonderful words in Scripture than these two words, but now. What vital words they are. Into our desperate state, into our state of condemnation before a holy God, where we had no help, we could do nothing to lift ourselves up, nothing to raise ourselves, nothing to break the power that was over us, comes but now. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. And this righteousness of God, just to, to continue on verse from verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. At the cross, the cosmic place of judgment, this is the place where we hear our verdict read out by our God. I think it came through in one of the contributions in worship, our God who is judge of all speaks over us our fate and he says justified innocent free righteous to us the ones who Paul has just said all of us have fallen short all of us have sinned deserving condemnation he speaks this message justified And what he's not talking about is a pardon. A pardon says, oh, look, 
we all know you're guilty. But, you know, I'm in a bit of a good mood. Had a nice lunch. I'll let you off this time. Just don't do it again, all right? A pardon, you leave the courtroom feeling like somehow you have managed to get away with something. You don't quite understand it, but you know that you have not been punished. But at the same time, you know, I am still guilty. I deserve punishment still. Justice has not been done. My guilt has not been removed from me. This is not a pardon. This is justification. The declaration of justified from God as our judge is him saying, you are completely free. I have considered your case. I have weighed up the facts. I know all that you have done. Nothing has escaped my attention. I look upon you. I see you just as you are. And I see no guilt at all. You are innocent. You are righteous. And we might think, is this really good news? Because everything within us, when we see guilty people declared innocent, everything within us screams. This seems to be in us right from the early ages. There is nothing that gets my boys, who are five and three, running quite like when the other one has done something wrong and Hannah and I do not yet know about it. I feel like they have a different speed setting when they are worried that guilt might go unpunished. If I see one of them coming towards me at pace, I'm like, right, the other one's done something wrong. And of course, there are lots of other sibling dynamics probably going on there, but it is like it is baked into us at the deepest level. Guilt must receive a penalty. And yet this most scandalous statement of Paul that just comes a few verses after our passage where he says, God justifies the ungodly. How? How is this perfect justice? This should get us questioning, is God a good God? Is he a righteous God? Is he a just God? He is declaring to the unrighteous that they are righteous. And the key to it comes, let's continue verse 24 and 25, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The key to justice truly being done at the cross is this slightly complicated word, propitiation, probably don't come up with it, uh, don't use it much in everyday life. You might have it in your translation as expiation or sacrifice of atonement. Um, and I won't do a deep dive into each of them, but essentially from the context that we already have of the preceding three chapters of Romans and the, the passage that we're in right now, where there is this emphasis on judgment and justice that we have seen, this word propitiation seems to be the, the right way to go. It means to avert or redirect hostility. And what this means in our context is that the judgment that is meant to fall on one, falls on another. 
this is what Paul is saying, takes place at the cross. That the hostility of God that should be rightfully directed at us for our guilt as we stand before him condemned. Instead, that hostility of God to sin and evil is directed upon Jesus. Jesus takes our place. Jesus bears our guilt. And Jesus receives our punishment. The only one who could ever do this on our behalf. In becoming like us, Jesus Christ, God the Son, willingly put himself in a place to be judged by God. But then as the only one who had never fallen short, the only one who'd ever walked righteous, the only one who had ever been truly innocent and truly blameless. So he was the only one that before God had no weight of sin, no guilt before God, his judge of his own. Only that one could then willingly say, I will take on yours. I will take your guilt. And so he willingly allowed himself to have the verdict spoken over him of guilty on our behalf. Upon him then came the judgment of God in our place, condemnation unto death. This is how we can know, truly know that our guilt has been taken away from us, that it is no longer hanging over our head. It has already been condemned. In Jesus at the cross, the full price of sin has been paid. The legal demands of sin have been satisfied and justice has been done. Because Christ willingly took our place. And with sin then satisfied, God then declares the judgment over us. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God sits on his heavenly throne of judgment and he speaks over us righteous, not guilty, innocent, blameless, clean, pure, worthy. We all know the power of words spoken over us to impact us and change us. I think back on how did I get to where I am today? How did I become who I am today? What shaped me the most? And in a large part, it's because of the words that have been spoken over my life and the encouragement that people have given me. And my old pastor had this, this great gifting to be able to sort of prophetically see into people's lives and to see what it was that God had gifted them in and how he was, how, what God was calling them to. And he was a big part in saying to me, I think you might be able to lead a church and you might be able to do this. And he kind of called that out of me and encouraged me and mentored me in it. And I'm sure you would have similar stories of words spoken over you that have changed you as people. If our words have power, as we speak them over one another, to impact one another, to change one another, how much more when God speaks 
over us, declares a verdict over us. The words that spoke into creation, their very existence, are the same words that speak over us and say righteous. His words, they make us into something we were not before. When he speaks, he says, this is who you now are. When he speaks and calls us righteous, we become righteous. His verdict comes down and essentially he speaks us into righteousness. This is really important for us to understand because this is not just that God is moving us about in his salvation accounting spreadsheet. That we sort of move from, like, same old person, just move from category of unrighteous into the category of righteous now. And it's like, well, I'm kind of the same person, but God just looks on me a, a little bit of a different way. No, when he speaks over us and declares this verdict of righteous at our fundamental level, at the very constitutional part of who we are, we become different people. We are spoken into being as ones who are righteous. And this has then the power to change completely how we see ourselves. One of the deepest deceptions that the enemy would want to have us believe is that we are unworthy people unworthy to come before God because of what we have done, because of who we are, because of the, the accusation that the enemy would then speak over us because of our past or, or whatever might be going on in our life, is you are not worthy to come before God. To those accusations, God as our judge speaks over us and he says, no, you are righteous. You are blameless. You are worthy. When you come on a Sunday morning and you show up and you think, I have had a week of mistake after mistake after mistake. How could I even come here? How do I? I don't deserve to be here. If everybody knew what was going on in my life, do you know what God speaks to you? He says, you are righteous. That when you turn up in home group and there's just a, a casual conversation, but something is said and it triggers and reminds you of that thing that you did 10 years ago and with it comes back all the, the waves of condemnation and guilt associated with it, God would speak over that, you are righteous. That when you are on your knees in your bedroom floor, you have just done that thing that you promised yourself you would never, ever do again. The words that your judge would speak over you, are you are righteous. That is who you are. We now are a righteous people because sin has been condemned at the cross. And as hard as it might be for us to consider God condemning in judgment, or to use the language that Paul uses throughout Romans 1 to 3, the wrath of God. It is actually, as painful as it can be, it's really good news for us. Because what it means is that God will not overlook the problem of evil. From an emotional point of view, purely emotional point of view, I, I would like God to be much easier and softer than this. I just think, can't you just forgive God? It would be much more comfortable for me if I could just think, oh, God, can't you just overlook a few things? Can't you just allow everybody and everything to be restored and to enjoy your blessing? Isn't that just what you do? But the problem with that line of thinking is we start to introduce some 
unrighteousness that I want, to, I want God to ignore. And we might end up with a God that we think in the moment is just a little bit nicer, but we don't end up with a just God. We need a just God. We need a God who knows what evil looks like. We, know, we need a God who is not afraid to judge evil to be evil. That he is unwavering and unflinching that when he sees evil, he will condemn it. He will defeat it. This is exactly what God is proclaiming at the cross. In verse 25, it says, this was to show God's righteousness. Or another translation would, would have it, this was a demonstration of the righteousness of God. In the first week, we looked at how the cross was designed to be a public event. It was designed to be seen and known by as many people as possible in that day, that people would see those hanging on the cross. This is a public proclamation from God as Jesus hung on the cross of here is righteousness and here is justice coming into the world. That the judgment that we witness at the crucifixion, it's not just a condemnation of all of humanity's sin, but is a divine condemnation against all that is evil. That evil is coming under the judgment of God. That he will not allow sin and death and the powers that are enslaving humanity, he will not allow them to have the final say. He will not allow unrighteousness to rule. At the cross, a definitive public once and for all judgment came down against the power of sin and the power of evil so that all that is wrong with this world can begin to be made right again. That in his creation, righteousness and justice would rule. And we might not live in a world of perfect goodness yet, but the cross tells us that one day we will. The cross tells us that one day we will be, because sin has been broken and sin has been judged, it will one, one day finally be judged into condemnation and we will live forever in harmony with God with perfect righteousness ruling. And this is the marvel and the wonder of the cross, that this righteousness that God was looking to bring about in his creation, righteousness for us individually and as a people, righteousness for all of what he has made, is accomplished by God and God alone. It is entirely his work from start through to finish. It is God who we stand before as our judge, before whom we have fallen short of his glory. But then it is the same God who looks upon us and is so moved by compassion and by love that he then starts to take the initiative of how can this be fixed and starts to provide for us a way out and take action on our behalf. And then, remarkably, at the cross, the most godless of places, it is the same God, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who steps forward in our place. 
to bear our sin that we may be righteous. This God, this one God in three persons, entirely within himself, found a way for him to be both the judge and the judged. He did it all. He found a way for divine justice to be upheld and so that we could be spoken into this undeserved, unmerited righteousness. And so all that is left for us to do is just participate in his righteousness that he has given for us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 22, all we have to do to be free from our sin, all we have to do to be able to stand before a holy, righteous God is to look upon Jesus and say, I trust in him. I look to him and him alone. And in one moment, we receive all of his righteousness. By his grace, verse 23, as a gift. Our justification and righteousness is the greatest gift we could ever receive. And it's for us to enjoy again and again and again. So we're going to finish by doing just that. I'd like to invite the band. We're going to finish by sharing communion together. And as we share communion, this is a way in which we remember all that Christ has done for us, but also to participate in all that Christ has done for us. As part of our response of faith, not the whole of our response, but part of our response of faith is by choosing to eat this meal where we remember and encounter our Savior who broke his body for us. And so the band is going to sing a song for us. And as they do, um, you can sing along, but also I'd like you to go.